Putin has used to justify his invasion and the resistance that he's encountered from the Ukrainians now armed to the teeth by Western allies. What is surely the most disturbing has been uh, the now very deliberate bombing and decimation of cities by modern cruise missiles and fragment bombs and horrific thermobaric uh, weapons. Modern apartment buildings, hospitals, city centers, civilian population centers have been targeted along with the expected um, infrastructure and military assets. It appears that Mr. Putin denied the fast victory that he was expecting is now resorting to a siege warfare uh, which has caused already um, the sort of which anyway has caused the death of millions and untold misery in places like Syria. I think particularly shocking in some ways has also been um, the fact that now over two million Ukrainians, a million of them children, have been turned into homeless uh, refugees in a matter of days. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, especially women and children, have been streaming toward the borders for safer nations, particularly Poland, with whom they share a language. Reportedly miles and miles of cars, many of them abandoned as people ran out of gas and were forced to walk miles in icy, snowy weather, dragging suitcases and strollers, many of them eventually abandoned and cast aside by exhausted families prodding their children, carrying their infants. The greatest mass um, um, exodus of refugees since World War II. Um, and there are, by the way, millions others internally displaced Ukrainians trying to find refuge within their own borders. So, so how should we respond to this? Um, how should we think of this, particularly as Christians? We, we might be tempted to lash out in anger. We may be tempted to despair in a sense of, of helplessness over what seems to be these continued meetings and, and all sorts of rhetoric and threats and serious financial sanctions and military actions thrown at uh, Mr. Putin, who remains un, unmoved and committed to his ruinous course. Um, I'm reminded of the, of the magicians of Pharaoh who came to him finally and said, the country is ruined. How long will you continue? Um, he's ruining his own nation and, and, and obviously another nation as well. We may be tempted to um, a degree of, of faith-wanting hopelessness, especially if we have enough historic memory to recall to ourselves similar tragedies over the last decades in places like Lebanon and Kosovo and Syria and Azerbaijan. People trapped in cities, starved to death, blown up, massacred and butchered en masse by other people. Now, we profess to be Christians and that means that we are a people of the cross. The event of the cross and the implications of the cross, its theology, if you will, must always figure into the way we look at things, the way we process things, big and small, wonderful and terrible alike. 
We see things in the light of the cross. That is a signal difference between us and others. So tonight we're going to look at the word of God given to us through the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 1. Paul, let's see if I can, yes, chapter 1. We can leave that. Um, beginning um, at verse 18, and we're going to read um, through verse 31. Um, sorry. Um, Romans 18, uh, Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. Uh, For the word of the cross is folly uh, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God... Uh, not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to, to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let no one boast who boasts uh, let no one who boasts boast excuse me let the one who boasts boast in the Lord so the apostle says this is the message of the cross and the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does the cross say to us uh, in this ongoing, outrageous tragedy that has been unfolding before our eyes and ears in the last three weeks? To the non-Christian, to the unbeliever, in the wisdom of the world, the cross the crucifixion of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago would likely never even come to mind. And if it did, it would be judged to be uh, to, to have absolutely nothing to do with current 
world affairs. To even reference the cross would be thought to be utter foolishness. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, admits this. He says, he speaks of the foolishness of the cross. The modern Jew, no less than the modern Gentile, uh, looks upon us incredulously when we speak of the cross of Christ in the context and suffering uh, of suffering and destruction and, 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 and the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. Surely, it must seem at the least to be completely out of touch with reality to talk about the cross in the midst of something like this. But the cross does speak into this situation with great significance. It does save and it does comfort and it does have a message of wisdom to those who will hear it. So listen. First, uh, the cross shows us something of the depth of our own sin and violence. It serves that purpose. Because if you're shocked... Uh, by the wicked violence of men who can so carelessly plot and execute the unleashing of of destructive, indiscriminate death of thousands of people, we at least as Christians ought not to be so very surprised. Nauseated, yes, horrified, surely, but not altogether surprised. For after all, we know We know the truth about the human heart. We know how bad it can get. We have the historical perspective and the lesson of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We, mankind, crucified God. The best and most gracious man that ever set foot on earth, the only sinless one, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, And men tortured him to death, laughing and sneering in his face all the while. What did Jesus do besides healing and and delivering hundreds of people, even raising people from the dead, preaching the gospel by which men could and can be saved from the fires of eternity, of judgment for eternity? And for this, he was crucified. The final most high-handed, outrageous sin of all of mankind for all time. The cross, you see, shows us better than all of the atrocities of the Ukraine, the wickedness and the depravity of man, the unimaginable capacity for hatred and evil is shown to us in the cross. You you can understand this, I hope. You can see this. You get the point. If, If men will crucify God, Well, blowing up other men by any means in any quantity is small change. It's almost to be expected. Listen, if the outrageous destruction of several thousand Americans in September 11th, 2001, 9-11, didn't disabuse Americans who missed the carnage of two world wars and the Korean War and the Vietnam War, of the capacity of men for evil, well, then this last few weeks ought to do the job. Um, Now retired uh, New York City PCA pastor Tim Keller put me onto this line of thought writing uh, 20 years ago now on 9-11 as he quoted from C.S. Lewis. Um, 
who, reflecting on the horrors of World War II, uh, that was his war, uh, quotes, um, uh, points out that the times of, of, of war and disaster don't really increase the sheer amount of misery and death in the world, but they concentrate it. And they wake us up from the illusion that life is manageable. If we had foolish hopes about human culture, writes Lewis, they are now shattered. If we had thoughts we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the souls of men, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. In ordinary times, only the wise realize, realize it. But now, in wartime, the stupid of us, of us know it. Um, in fact, um, through the work of God the Holy Spirit in our own hearts, we should be able to see enough of our own murderous anger and pride to be able to, to look with sorrowful understanding, and I don't mean acceptance, but a recognition that when we hear about the worst of mankind, we cannot say to ourselves, oh, I would never do anything like that. <laughs> Vladimir Putin is not a monster. He's a degraded, sinful man who has power and influence and who is following his own deeply perverted dreams and disillusions about himself and Russia and about the world and the Western world especially out of the human heart, and especially the unregenerate heart, our Lord tells us, comes evil thoughts and murder and all the rest. The cross shows us the depth of our sin and violence. My first point. The cross also, the message of the cross is also a messenger, though, of life and consolation uh, to the believer. Where is that? The cross is a message of life and consolation to the believer. And I'll introduce this by asking the question, how can we possibly handle the brutality of life, such as we see it, if all we have is either A, a generic, impersonal, general sort of God, more of a philosophy than anything else, who lives in an ivory tower apart from humanity and himself has never experienced any suffering, or B, uh, if we think that we live in a universe where there is no God at all, how can, we, how can we possibly handle the brutality of life if that's all we have? What sort of consolation is there in either of those philosophies? Uh, if there's no God writes uh, Pastor Keller, reflecting again on 9-11, then even your outrage is trivialized. It's just the way life is. There's no justice. On the other hand, if there's nothing better than a general or impersonal God up in the sky, how do we think he could possibly understand or even care what's happening here on earth? But... But God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, gives us a new resource that comforts deeply. He proves his commitment 
to ending our suffering by getting involved in it himself. Do you understand that? See, Keller is reminding us that unlike any other religious system in the world, Christianity makes the outrageous claim that God in Christ actually experienced the heartbreak of violence in a personal, first-hand manner. God the Father felt the waves of sorrow wash over him as he, as he watched the wretched, cruel death of his one and only son, his beloved son, in the hands of heartless ideologues uh, whose political ambitions and blind cruelty compares very well uh, to, the, um, to countless powerful people who followed him, including the current Russian dictator, Mr. Putin. The message of the cross, you see, is also a message of hope and a message of grace. It's a message of salvation to those who believe. It gives us something to speak to and speak into a world that uh, has no hope. It accomplishes, more than that, it, uh, it accomplishes God's loving work of redemption. That's what happened at the cross. God is not powerless. He pursues, he captures his enemies, not to kill them, but to convert them and to transform them by his power and love. That was accomplished at the cross. At the cross, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The crucifixion of Christ provides the spotless Lamb of God, the complete and perfect sacrifice for sin that is so efficacious, so effective, that it covers the sins of God's elect for every age, Jew and Gentile, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What can man accomplish to bring peace? Very little, very, for very few and for a very short time. Um, what can man do more than bring a measure of brief earthly peace punctuated by episodes of violence and heartbreak no matter where we live or who rules the land? But the cross, the supernatural saving work of Christ uh, and the cross brings solid spiritual peace in this world and perfect eternal peace in the life to come for eternity. And, and this too. Christ's cross also sated the church, also seeds the world with, with the church, with his gracious people, his hope-filled, loving people are spread about to ameliorate or to moderate the sadness and craziness in the world like yeast in dough. That's what the apostle is speaking about when he refers to the power of the cross. What is the power of the cross? It is the saving message of Jesus Christ uh, by means of the violence of the cross, which is the ironic means of redemption and peace. Uh, God brings peace through bloodshed. Not the bloodshed of men. That's our hopeless method. That's Putin's method of bringing about him his miserable idea of failed Soviet unity and peace. His socialistic craziness. Uh, God uh, brings real peace uh, through the bloodshed of Christ, his Son, our Savior. The message of the cross, then, 
is a message of life and consolation. Finally, my third point. The cross demands forgiveness and mercy. Um, The cross demands forgiveness and mercy. Our Lord um, absolutely and categorically demands that his blood-bought children extend forgiveness even to their enemies. This is unprecedented in any religion uh, in the world. Um, And it will be a great challenge uh, to the people of Ukraine and to many of us. But the scriptures are unmistakable in this point. You have heard it said, the words of our Lord Jesus, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In fact, um, in such places as the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus makes it clear that if we refuse to uh, forgive our enemies, uh, we cannot expect that he will forgive our sins. Uh, Hard-hearted, unforgiving uh, people cannot be Christians. Um, They cannot be received into the kingdom. That is a unique and distinguishing mark of Christians. They forgive even their enemies. Desiring that they come to saving faith and peace through Christ as they themselves have. Now, don't misunderstand. Forgiving your enemies is not simply resignation or capitulation to evil. Nobody gets off the hook. We're not simply called to love our enemies and to pray for them. We also are ready to leave judgment to God. Do not take revenge, my friends, writes the Apostle Paul, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, Um, I will repay says the Lord. That's not to say that there should not be some worldly justice to be shared by Putin and to some degree I think the Russian nation, certainly their military and political leaders who have simply bowed their heads and followed orders. The Nuremberg trials which judged Nazi soldiers who worked as prison guards in the death camps or slammed the doors of cattle cars that were carrying away thousands of Jews to be exterminated. The world court did not accept the excuse that they were merely soldiers following orders. Perhaps some world court in The Hague will be convened to bring men to worldly justice for crimes against humanity in this case. But whether that happens or not, we know that the Lord God will not overlook atrocities unleashed in this conflict, and that should be a comfort. I want to say something else. That the forgiveness of our enemies is also a vital means of giving up the hate and the desire for personal vengeance so that we can pursue justice and maybe even reconciliation. I've personally found that, um, that I, um, I can't really confront um, a wrongdoer effectively about his or or her sin until, until I've forgiven it. Only then am I sometimes able to help the person see their wrong or at least able to wisely pursue justice and restitution. But if my heart is filled with hate, um, I'll never get anything done except to fuel a cycle of retaliation. 
Or to say it another way, when I purpose not to bring a person to see the truth, but only to hurt them, to get even, to retaliate, uh, I will never uh, get anywhere. Or to say it yet another way, forgiveness frees my heart to pursue justice and reconciliation depending on the reaction of the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is also a means of preventing us from becoming ourselves hateful, dangerous people. Uh, as evil as the one we forgive. Um, Keller illustrated this point um, in his little article written years ago by referencing uh, Tolkien's book series, The Lord of the Rings. Now, a few of you may have read this, but a lot of you have seen some of the movies. And, and um, the, the, the basic plot dynamic um, of The Lord of the Rings uh, writes, um, uh, writes Keller um, revolves around the conundrum of the great ring of the Dark Lord. The good people have found this ring, but they can't use his own power against them without becoming just like the one who made it. Uh, they can, as it were, defeat the Dark Lord, but only by becoming an evil Dark Lord in his place. Uh, the cross uh, doesn't allow that. It demands forgiveness and mercy. It changes people. It changes me, even in the midst of personal violence. The message of the cross, as Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 1.18, speaks to us today, then, in a very relevant manner, if you can hear it. It is still, yes, it is still a stumbling block and foolishness to many, but it's a message of grace and a message of healing for us to comfort and instruct ourselves with and, and to share with others as we minister in whatever manner we might. Yes, the cross shows us um, our own hearts. It shows us um, uh, the, the unimaginable capacity of mankind for evil and hatred to illustrated by this yet again terrible war. It reminds us also, almost unbelievably, that there is a God who uh, has personally experienced violence and understands. Uh, it delivers us from a heart of anger and retaliation and gives us a gracious message. It, it keeps us from becoming uh, no different than our enemies. The cross is the heart of the gospel which God has given us to share with the world, to tell everywhere in every condition men that Jesus saves. The peace and comfort that God promises to his church does not make us immune from the tragedies of this world. He does not judge that to be in our best purposes. But he does promise grace and spiritual peace in this age and eternal peace in the age to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the, the message of the cross that speaks to us even in the midst of this horrendous conflict, war that's 
illustrated before our eyes and ears. Um, we thank you that it speaks to us in our own um, anger and heartlessness. We thank you for the message of the cross and for the message of redemption. For a God who knows. A God who looked upon Israel in their misery uh, in, in Egypt and, and knew. And so you know, Lord, and you act in ways that we will rejoice to see. We trust, Lord, we pray for great revival. Yes, revival in the church throughout uh, that portion of the world. We pray that you would put down vicious men and raise up your church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.